Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. Now, just to, I'm recording this after the actual podcast. Uh, the conversation with John just got off to such a great start that I didn't want to interrupt it with some kind of clunky, weird intro for the podcast. This was a great one, guys. Such a good conversation. So many good tactics and useful tidbits of information. As always, if you'd like, comment, share, subscribe. It would be greatly appreciated. Go give John a follow. Show your appreciation. Here's the podcast. How's it going, dude? Morning, John. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you great. Excellent. Yeah, I got you too. Just going to get a couple settings here. I think we're golden. How's your day going, man? It's going pretty good. Good. Yeah. I, uh, Standard. I, I just got back from Mule Deer on Sunday morning, and I'm still in that. I always find the first week back... I feel scattered no matter how like organized I am when I come back, like going from the simplicity of the mountains to the complexity of real life. It's just, it's a bit overwhelming for that first week back. Yeah. I'm uh three weeks post elk season and I'm still feeling depressed a little bit. <laughs> it's hard. I have a hard time explaining that to people. I don't. And I feel bad for my wife because she's so good. She gives me this time away and I come home and I'm a bit of a bear. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying not to, like, it was a good trip. I had a good time, came home with an animal, like, a, but there's, it's, it's, it's a hard thing, man. Like it's, uh, for me, I've nailed it down. It's the purity that's out there and it's almost addictive because it's so simple and it's so pure mission focused and it's just, it's addictive, man. And you come out of that and it's hard to, um, to sink back into reality. Yeah. How long does it take you to get into the rhythm out there? Do you fall into it right away? It is fast. Physically, it's always day three. No matter how good a shape I'm in, it's the morning of day three I wake up ready to crush the mountain. But mentally, probably the first day I wake up in a tent. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've noticed though, I've gotten much better at cleaning up at home first. I used to, like when we first started my business, I would leave and there'd be a million things hanging over my head and it would take me two or three days to shut down because I, my mind was so foggy with everything else. And now that last week before I go, if I don't get to go to the gym, if I don't get to do any of my personal stuff, so be it. Shit's got to get cleaned up at home and at work so that when I leave, the mind is clear. And that's helped me like kick over into that mindset much faster. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot to be said for that, making sure everything's done at home. Um, yeah, for me, it's about, it's about three days, like you said, but it's about three days for what I call like going full indage, mm-hmm. like where you're just like totally kind of in sync and, you know, the weather's not bothering you as much and you're just, cause you know how to, you know what to do, you know how to do it, Yeah, but it's getting into the rhythm maybe of, uh, you know, of the mountain takes me about three days. The problem is coming off of that, like you said, it's like one day you're there, you walk back to the trailhead, you fly out back to the float plane base and boom, you're back in civilization. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've had to deal with that, you know, for, for my whole kind of adult life. And it's, it's just not easy. And then for whatever reason, this, this elk season has been more difficult for me to come out of. I mean, I had a great elk season and I hunted probably, I, I did hunt longer 
number of days wise than I ever have and had more interactions. And so it was just like, it was almost, I think you use the word addiction, but it was almost like this addiction to like, it wasn't 21 days straight, but it was like getting back out there and like getting, you know, trying to like plug back in and plug back in. And then when it was over, it was like, this can't be over, you know, and I'm not a rifle hunter. So I'm like, it's over. Like, yeah, uh, there's nothing. You know, I mean, there's other hunting I'm doing, but it's like, that's kind of what I circle on my calendar, you know, every year and look forward to the most. So now you got to wait 11 more months. And this has been tough for me because I live in BC and I don't want to come off as spoiled or entitled, but our elk hunting, like I go South every year pre COVID to archery elk hunt for very good reason. And just the densities are higher, terrain's better, weather's normally like, it's just a better hunt. I love it. Um, and for the last two years, I haven't been able to do that. And last year I tried elk hunting here, which I've done several years. And I just, this year I was just like, I'm not doing it. Cause it's just, it's not that experience that I'm looking for. Um, and I'm grateful now that finally it looks like on the eighth, things are going to open up. So when draw season kind of is around the corner in January, I can start making, you know, the state's part of my plan again, because it's been two full years since I had any meaningful, right, right. meaningful hunting down there. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. You know, some seasons I come out of, uh, you know, I come out of elk season, just so wore down to the nub mentally, physically, emotionally, like, um, I'm almost ready for it to be over. Right. And, and, uh, this year just wasn't one of those years where it, it was all those things, but I still had gas in the tank and I yeah. still, you know, and so it's like, you start to feel like, you know, am I, you know, am I doing enough? Am I giving it my all? Like, am I, am I quitting somehow? Or, um, like I said, there's, there's other hunting to be done, but you know, those bugles only echo through the mountains, uh, so many weeks, a a year. There's nothing else like it, man. Somebody asked me the other day, what's your favorite type of hunting? And I said, I'm going to go elk for the ice or elk for the action and sheep for the isolation. But if you put a gun to my head and said, I could only go out one month a year, I would, I'd take, I'd take archery elk in the rut. Like there's just nothing else like that. Yeah. But, 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 but each species kind of gives, gives you something different. So, you know, I grew up back East in Ohio. And so, you know, whitetail hunting tree stands like that was it if you were going to archery hunt um i've been living out west for a long time now i absolutely want to elk hunt maybe mule deer hunt but come november so right now yeah for whatever reason it's in my dna there's there's nothing else i'd rather be doing than sitting in a tree stand sometimes bored out of my mind right right fidgety even um but so it's a different kind of hunting, but it's, it's just, but that's what I want to do that time of year. Cause yeah. like elk season's done. They're not bugle anymore. Whitetails are, are rutting. Like that's what I want to do, you know? And, uh, so it's, it's cool that you have that, yeah. you have those different things to do. So, um, but they, every species offers you something different. Every one of them. hundred um, percent. Yeah. 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 Well, let's let's dive into this. I'm not even going to start off with a with a formal intro or or anything. I'm sure everyone who who listens to the podcast knows who you are and your background. Real briefly for anybody listening, John served in the Navy for 26 years. Um, the majority of that up in up in Kodiak um, with the Naval Special Warfare in the cold weather training facility. Um, you did a lot of work with the SEAL teams and specifically post 9 11. 
when you were kind of putting together some tactics and stuff for Afghanistan, you were, you know, individually recruited because of your cold mountain experience. And then as you transitioned out of the Navy, you, it was a couple other things first, but you know, for the last is it six or seven years now, you've almost been with seven Sitka? years now, almost yeah. seven years. And, and John's the big game product manager of Sitka, which means he's primarily responsible for putting together kind of systems based approach to big game hunting, technical clothing. And I don't, I, I was about to say primarily in the mountains, but it's funny you bring up whitetail. And I think Sitka's done a really good job in the past couple of years of also kind of getting across maybe some of those hurdles as well. So I would just say technical clothing for adverse conditions for, for big game. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a great way of, uh, of framing it. Yep. And so what, what I'd like to do today is primarily hit up two big talk topics. A first one would be just risk mitigation in general. And then the second one would be winter goat hunting. <laughs> some, some tactics and some, some gear, which I know is a, another topic kind of near and dear to your yeah. heart. Yeah. Um, and so I'd like to start off broadly. Um, now I come from a background as a forestry engineer, which I was doing long before I was hunting. So, and I, I, I'm used to working in a lot of remote locations, which I think gave me a leg up when I got into backpack hunting and, and backcountry hunting, because I was used to looking at things in terms of plans. And when you are, you know, working for large forestry companies, you have, you have to file plans and there's lots of paperwork and you're, you, you get into this mindset that when I'm going someplace, and there's potential danger, and I'm taking people who work for me, there's a set of rules I must follow to reduce the likelihood of a negative occurrence. And should a negative occurrence occur, there's a paper trail and like a chain of custody. And there's something you can look at to see like, you know, what was the root cause and you can, you can do all that kind of stuff. And now in my current role, I kind of work in behavioral sciences and it's given me a new approach to how human beings identify risk and how we make decisions under pressure. And the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically is that I find most people have a fairly binary approach to risk. Something's either dangerous or it's not. And if it's dangerous, if it crosses the threshold of what I'm comfortable with, I don't do it. And if it doesn't, I do do it, which I've, I find is like a bit of a naive approach. And you seem to have a far more nuanced, it's about risk mitigation. It's about you know, contingencies and outlining what you could face and having gear that could serve different purposes. And before I kind of ramble on too much, I would just like you to maybe discuss your overall approach to risk. Like, how do you think about it? How do you address it? How much energy do you give it on a, in a priority of things when you're considering remote hunts? Where does that, you know, addressing those mitigation tactics lie as far as you know, your own personal priority list. And I would just love to hear your approach to risk in general. So I think the first place we need to start, Jay, is just um, coming to the realization that that risk exists. Right. Because I think depending on what you're doing, some people have not even come to that, to that conclusion. Okay. So, um, Obviously, military, uh, backcountry hunting, but also alpine climbing, backcountry skiing. So there's a lot of risk. So I'll give you an example, just a short story where we were going to go, a couple friends and I, 
uh, into the Selkirk Mountains to go on a, a backcountry ski trip. We were going to helicopter in and then ski from there. You know, it was a lodge. We had guides, et cetera. And several weeks prior to that, um, maybe about a month prior to that, they had what was the largest avalanche fatality, um, it, I think still in Canada's history at one time. So at one time, and I, I forget how many people were, were, were buried and X number of people died. Um, and the two guys I was with were freaked out. They're like, I can't believe this. They're pros. Like, how could this happen? And I said, guys, I said, we backcountry ski all the time. Those risks exist all the time. We choose not to talk about them maybe in this in this vein because, you know, either it hasn't happened to us in a while or nobody's been killed. But the reality is it could happen any and all the time. And we should be actually more assured that the people that we're going with were able to rescue some people, did everything right we're professional in the way they went about it, right? Like that's the way you need to approach it. And so this is not talked about very often. And it's absolutely, I don't think, talked about at all in the hunting world. But you talk about forestry. I just talked about backcountry skiing. Let's, you know, we could talk about the military. You are you are inherently going to do risky things. Right. Dare I say dangerous things. But what people don't understand if they haven't been there is when you're a true professional, and this is the way I think backcountry hunters should approach this, is as a true professional or what I like to call a student of the game, you have to, one, assume that there is risk, and you have to figure out how much, you know, what, what that risk is. Is it an extreme risk? Is it not an extreme risk? And everybody is going to have their own appetite depending on, you know, their age and experience and, and et cetera, of what that risk is. So I had a much higher risk tolerance, uh, you know, in my twenties than I do in my fifties. It just, you know, the, the way it is, but so accepting that risk and then figuring out, um, what things you can put in place to take something that maybe you think is, is a high risk, maybe even on the verge of unacceptable and what things can you put in place to begin to lower or mitigate that risk to an acceptable level. So it could be something like, you know, your personal training. It could be physical training. It could be skills-based training. Um, it could be partners. Is my partner as well-trained as me? Because I can help my partner. Can my partner help me, right? Um, do I have things like satellite uh, communication devices, right? Uh, do I have the right gear and most importantly, know how to use it? Um, and then have we trained in such a way that, Hey, if I get wet, I know I can dry myself out because I've done that already. It's not a theoretical thing. It's, it's a real thing. And so you take these, you take all these layers and apply them to the risk and you're like, we've lowered it to an acceptable level. And you know, I'm not sure with the Forest Service, but certainly with the military, certainly with some of the backcountry ski courses, um, you, you have almost a checklist uh, that you go through, maybe like even a pilot, and you go, okay, if we do nothing, it's it's at a high risk. If we do this, we drop it down to this level. And then if we do a series of steps, we get it to a green level or, you know, a three out of 10, and we feel we can, we can push that. Um, there's trips there's partners, uh, there's objectives where I'm willing to accept the higher level of risk to get the reward. But, but that, that becomes a personal choice, but, but that 
you just think that there either is risk or is not risk is naive. There's always risk when you go into the backcountry. And when you start doing things like you're doing, where you're going by yourself, when you're going, you know, uh, in the winter, you know, where the, the it's extreme cold, you're now you're going to enter into the mountains with snow on the ground, like those risks pile up. And then what can you do to bring them back down to where you say, okay, this is, this is, uh, you know, a reasonable thing for me to do at this point in my life. So is there, do you have any frameworks or, and I know the, you know, military is a huge fan of, of acronyms or planning strategies that can kind of simplify the process. Cause I think what happens for most people when this hasn't been like an integral part of their life for a number of years, for a variety of reasons, they just, they get a little bit overwhelmed. Like, ah, and that's why I think people get to the point where they just don't address it at all. Because it comes to the point, if I start to think about this, I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I might just back out. So I'm just going to ignore it and just hope nothing happens. But is there a way to simplify that approach, some type of framework or an acronym that people could, could use to, to help them, you know, tackle things one, one step at a time? Yeah, actually, I'm not going to be able to. Re- there is an acronym, and I'm not going to be able to remember it off the top of my head right now. <laughs> and if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you everything it stood for. Um, there is a, uh, you know, there's a planning checklist that I've that I've created that's, uh, you know, actually on the on the uh, my website where that planning checklist is a series of steps. That, you know, some people may feel is uh, maybe too detailed or, you know, there's there's too much there. But it's a series of steps that I can go through and begin to check off, you know, uh, and, and, and make sure that I've got things in place that really at the end of the day is mitigating risk. Now, I don't necessarily frame it that way, but it's like, how long am I going to be out there? What is the weather forecast? Who are my partners? What are the river levels supposed to be? Is there snow on the ground? What is the avalanche forecast? Uh, do I have a satellite communication device? Do I have my digital maps loaded and are they ready to be uh, offline? What is my fuel consumption and will I have enough? Uh, what is the water filtration that I'm using? Uh, you know, Do I need that? And, and if I do, what is it and is it acceptable for that environment? And it goes all the way down and it gets to, uh, you know, have I left a plan with a significant other? Uh, do I have the local SAR numbers plugged into my phone? Uh, do I have a doctor friend or somebody that I can call and reference if I can't get out of the mountains because the weather's poor uh, and I've got to sit on somebody and I need some medical advice to help, you know, help get through that. that that's really what that is. And, and when, I, when I go through that, and, and I'm not going to tell you I go through it on, on every, you know, two or three day trip. Cause I've done it for so long, but as I go through that, I go through those steps. I'm like, if I have those checked in a box, there's a really good chance that I have enough in place that I'm going to, that I've mitigated, or let's just say I've got enough in place that I've begun to mitigate the risk. And that if things go wrong, that I've got things in place that I can, that I can, uh, uh, you know, implement the, the one thing we don't talk about either in that form or, or in the hunting industry per se, as we talk about physical training, you know, I know you work out a lot, right? Physical training is a huge part of your life. It's a huge part of my life, but the skills-based training again is something that, um, is, is not talked about. So you, you, you know, you, you watch, you know, whoever your favorite hunting celebrity is and they're out there doing this or that. Um, 
and you don't see the years of experience that they've put in to get to the point where they, as an example, can pitch a tarp uh, in the dark in hurricane force winds in, in any terrain that they happen to find themselves in in the middle of the night, right? Um, that is a skills-based thing. Uh, you know, Cam Haynes has done a great job of, you know, promoting the, the physical training aspect. But, um, you know, can, can somebody dry their clothes out at night? Have they ex- what I like to call exercise their system? And what, what you begin to do is you begin to uh, you begin to feel. So I like to say I could take somebody in 30 days who maybe has never gone in the backcountry and I could take them from, a, a, you know, a relative inexperienced person. And the first half of that 30 days, all we're going to be talking about is how that person can take care of themselves. Okay. So I like to call the care and feeding of that person. They're not capable, nor should you ask them to take care of their buddy, right? Uh, in some regard, like in the military, we weren't even asking them to apply very advanced tactics because they were just trying to figure out how to unscrew their own stuff and yep. just be a productive member of society. The second 30 days was to ramp. So now that you had that baseline was to ramp up and you would implement more tactics. You would take that person and put them in some leadership position or with a buddy. And now they had to not only take care of themselves, but take care of somebody else. So you got to the point after 30 days, that person felt pretty confident out there to not only take care of themselves, but maybe take care of their buddy, but now have this uh, aperture that was opened that now mm-hmm. they could go say hunt that yeah. now they could say they could apply mule deer tactics to go hunt the mule deer. They weren't worried about staying warm or dry or feeding themselves or keeping their feet from getting blistered. Right. And so this is something that <clears throat> isn't, isn't talked about and is almost at some level probably inpro- inappropriately assumed that that goes into the risk mitigation. So, uh, if I haven't been to the desert in a long time and I'm going to go do a desert mule deer hunt, it's going to take me a little while to kind of what, what, what we talk about, like assimilate into that environment. I'm going to have to dust off a lot of things and, and go through my checklist and make sure that I'm thinking through everything. And then I have to say, okay, what are the risks that I'm taking on in that environment? Cause the risks in the desert are going to be different than the risks in, you know, a late season uh, sheep hunt, right? So going through that, okay, it's it's dehydration, it's heat stroke, it's you know maybe rattlesnake bites, it's uh, you know flash floods if I'm if I'm in a dry creek bed as opposed to avalanches, frostbite, altitude sickness, those kind of things, and then going, do I need to go and and take a course to get better at at, at avalanche mitigation, or do I need to go? Uh, and understand what to do, you know, if me or my buddy is bit by a snake or what are the, what are the, uh, you know, signs and symptoms of, of heat stroke and what are the mitigations? Um, a, a buddy of mine, uh, we had talked about this prior to his trip. Uh, he was going to Colorado. He lives in Pennsylvania and he was going to go to 12, 13,000 feet to hunt mule deer. First time he'd been to that elevation. Um, and I, it wasn't, I don't think it was first time mule deer hunting, but certainly at that elevation. And so we had talked about this and we talked about, uh, you know, different medications you could take prophylactically to kind of help, et cetera, et cetera. And I told him, I said, but it's not just you, it's whoever you're going with. Because if you're in a depleted state, you may not know 
that you have these issues, but your buddy better know you're having the issues and vice versa. Unfortunately for him, but fortunately in another way, he got altitude sickness. He got acute mountain sickness. And I believe it, it, uh, it started turning into pulmonary edema, which is water on the lungs. He was, he was cognizant enough to know that it was happening his buddy was cognizant enough to know that it was happening and to know how to help mitigate those risks so that when this guy was in a depleted state, he said, okay, I'm going to give him a Diamox and we're going to get him down to altitude. They got him down to some altitude. It wasn't enough. They're like, we got to pull out of the mountains and take this guy to the hospital. Probably saved his life. If you don't know that and you're just going to go to 12,000 feet and hunt mule deer because you saw you know, your favorite hunting celebrity do that and you don't know what goes into that, you could seriously hurt yourself. Yeah. So that is a risk mitigation profile uh, for a couple different hunts um, that, that people need to walk themselves through. And it's certainly not to say you should be scared, but you need to be aware. So where I hunt here in Montana, it is no small fact that there's a lot of grizzly bears, yep. a lot of grizzly bears. And there are certain drainages and there are certain areas where if you go there, it's not a question of if, but when and how many grizzly bears you're going to see. How do you mitigate that risk? Do you bring a firearm? Do you bring bear spray? If you're bringing bear spray, have you ever deployed a bear spray to see how it works? Does it work if there's a slight breeze in your face? How far away does it go? How long is it going to last? Is it a one shot and you're done? Can you shoot your pistol? Can you shoot your pistol from from holster quick enough and accurately enough, right? Or is that not enough? So the mitigation is I'm going to bring two buddies. We're not just going to bring one buddy. We're going to bring enough to get one elk out in one go and never have to go back there. So those are the things that we thought about this year. And sure enough, we ran into four grizzly bears, ran into four black bears, and we ran into, I don't know how it died, uh, but a dead cow elk that was cached by a grizzly that was probably sitting there watching us wander by. And and you're just like, we've like, we, we got to get the hell out of here. Right. And, and, And so the reason... And the way we mitigated the risk even further is after we got our buddy's bull out, we chose not to go back to that area because we thought that the risk was just too high and we couldn't mitigate the risk to make it acceptable enough to try to go and kill another bull in there. We had to go right. find another area to go. So long, long answer, uh, but but there's a lot to think about. No, I, I love this and I love I love the call out of skills for, for two reasons. Um, one... I think largely due to social media, people like practicing sexy things. People don't mind practicing their bow and they don't mind going to the gym because it makes great content, get lots of <laughs> likes and, and everybody's into it. But, but it's, it's the yeah. other stuff. Like I realized the hole in my game is Avi. I don't have any technical Avi training whatsoever. And I knew that going into my goat hunt last year. And this is the second part that I like about addressing skills is that it is, our risk profile is not a fixed um, element or a fixed metric. It is relative to our own abilities. So if we want to go do things that may be considered more dangerous, one of the ways that you can do that is by increasing your own skill set. If I want to go deeper and I want then into, you know, more snow packed areas that have steeper terrain, then I need to go get the appropriate training so that the risk isn't actually any greater because I have elevated my own skill in relation to the circumstances that I might find myself in. And I think that's the empowering thing that I want to pass on to people because that's what I brought into this 
People think I'm nuts all the time for where I go by myself. And it doesn't even feel, it's not like I think about this and it's like, oh, I'm going to be brave and go do this. Like it doesn't even occur to me because I've gone to remote locations in mountains for so many years of my life and gone in one piece, taken appropriate actions and steps and come out in one piece that I feel very comfortable in my own abilities. But I try very hard to communicate to people like this is not something like if you just picked up a bow yesterday and you don't have a background in the mountains, like I'm not recommending that you do these types of things. But I think it's empowering to people to to let them know that that's not saying you can't. It's just saying that you need to address your own skill set first so that you're not a liability to yourself and others when you're out there. Yeah, correct. And again, we've almost done like when I say we, like maybe, you know, just the hunting public at large has, has not done a good job and maybe a disservice, especially with all the new people that are coming into hunt, to hunting and especially like backcountry hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't done a good job of really trying to um, talk about these things, right? It, right. It's, there, there's an assumption that you have, you know, when they see you go into the, into the you know, winter backcountry by yourself, Social media, I'm not going to rail on social media, but it, it's not a platform that you can dig into and provide the context. Right. This yes. this kind of platform is, right? But if if they knew that you had spent all those years in the Forest Service, and as an example, that you, you know, if you have or haven't, but, you know, that you've gotten, uh, you know, wilderness medical training and, you know, you've done this for so many years that, you know, it's not a problem that you know how to care and feed for your uh, – feed and care for yourself, um, those kind of things – um, they just see you doing the cool thing in the cool area with the cool animal, but, but the, 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 the lead up, the ramp up to get there could have been the last 20 years of your life, right? Could have been the last 30 years of your life, which to me is the exciting part in the sense that that is the journey. That is right. the, the enjoying the journey part. Cause hunting season is so, is so infinite, right? It's so short. Um, you know, with me and, and I, I hope, you don't mind me telling this story because I, I'm, I've, I've told it one other place, but, no, please do. um, but you know, I, I hunted and then I was in the military and I was in the mountains and then I was doing all the, you know, climbing and skiing and, and all these things that what I wanted to be at a very high level. And it got to, you know, a, maybe a, a, a mid level kind of thing, but I was very competent in the mountains. I was very comfortable with myself and I was very comfortable backcountry skiing by myself and, you know, understanding the risks of avalanches and snow and, you know, solo ice climbing. And, and I'm not saying those are the smartest things, right? Again, we're trying to assess risk on a daily basis, but, but I felt comfortable. But then when I, when I was able to feel comfortable now in the backcountry of Alaska, I wanted to try to begin marrying my skills of, you know, uh, maybe some climbing skills and my, my, my snow evaluation and, and hunting. And so I would do these late season mountain goat hunts for anybody that saw me doing that, you know, by myself, walking some windblown ridgeline, you'd think I was insane. And I'm not going to say that it was the smartest thing I ever did, but I had put a lot of different things into place to lower that risk to what I felt at that time was, was acceptable. So, uh, the, the last mountain goat that I killed in Alaska before I left, it was, I think early December, there was definitely snow on the ground. And I knew that these goats were living in this 400 and some foot deep ravine. Uh, it was, you know, kind of just getting to the, to the end of the rut. And I'd gone up in there, um, by myself, but 
what did I bring? So not just all the knowledge that I had, which, you know, I like to say knowledge weighs nothing. I mean, it may cost you something to get it, but it weighs nothing to carry it into the backcountry with you. Uh, but I had crampons. I had self-arrest uh, trekking poles. I had an avalanche beacon, right? Um, I think I had a shovel, uh, maybe not a shovel. There were a couple other things I could have brought, but nonetheless, I was relatively prepared. I told somebody where I was going. I told them where I was parking my truck. Long story short, I end up shooting this mountain goat, this really nice billy, and of course, boom, they go downhill. Yep. I put the crampons on. I put the self-arrest trekking poles in my hand. I start blood trailing. I end up having to turn into the mountain. I have to down climb this, this ravine, and what I realize is the herd of goats, I think there were 19 or 20. They were on the other side of this ravine. The goat I had shot, I could not see. There, He was not visible. But I realized that the gully, the chute between us had avalanched. Okay. So I knew that avalanche conditions existed. I knew I was by myself. I knew I was <laughs> climbing without a rope. But I knew my mountain goat was down there. I eventually got to the bottom after some uh, talking to myself, like, you're an idiot. You should probably shouldn't do this. Quit being a pussy going back and forth. Yeah. I got down there and found this mountain goat, uh, dead in a pile of avalanche debris at the bottom of this, of this chute. Um, and so, you know, I eventually had to, I, I was able to call out and, and get my buddy called my wife and got my buddy to bring uh, some snowshoes. Cause it was going to be really, really difficult now to get out the bottom of this Right, small creek drainage with this avalanche activity above me, um, but but th- but that's an example of, you know, that to me that was kind of like my graduation or my graduate level hunt where yeah. I had taken all my skills and combined them, um, and I didn't feel lucky like I'd gotten away with something. I felt like I had worked a long time to get to the point where I could do a hunt at that level and and continue to assess risk, and as I assessed that risk to mitigate it with whatever it was, either gear I brought, experience I had, knowledge I had acquired, whatever it was. And so I wasn't putting myself in further and further worse situations that I couldn't have gotten myself out of. That's such an interesting um, kind of element that you just brought up. There's this, you know, in behavioral sciences, there's this thing called escalation of commitment. When we feel, look, human beings have this thing called loss aversion. We feel the pain of a, a loss twice as powerfully as, a, as the pleasure from a similar gain. So losing 20 bucks feels twice as bad as finding 20 bucks, which serves a great evolutionary purpose. You can only die once. So if something could potentially kill you, you should be twice as afraid of it as a, you know, a, a strawberry bush or something like this that, that could provide you some, you know, benefit. But the thing is, when people get into riskier conditions, the psychological tendency is to assume even more risk, this escalation of commitment, because your likelihood of loss becomes even greater. And this like psychological fear, this bias we have, this loss aversion causes us to assume more risk the more committed we get to outcomes. And that's where I think people pass that point in no return. Like there's some people who would have been going down that chute without similar skills, similar knowledges similar knowledge that would have talked themselves into doing it anyways, because that escalation of commitment. And I think that's something we need to be very aware of. Like, am I doing this because 
I'm capable of it or am I doing this because I'm afraid uh, or I have some kind of psychological tendency that is that is causing me to act in an inappropriate way because I don't want to lose something. Yeah, there's there's a it's, it's fascinating. There, there's a lot to this and I'm sure you I, I guarantee you understand the psychology a lot better than me, but uh, you know, Alpine climbing is an example with a partner and, you know, you have all the gear and you have the rope and you're, you know, you're assessing every pitch, you know, as you go, or, or, uh, we're going to go backcountry skiing. We, we want to ski this one thing. Um, but the whole time I want to go in with, I think I know what the risk is Mm -hmm. and I think we've done enough to mitigate it, but I'm not. I'm not so set in my ways that I'm right. I'm unafraid to change my opinion as it goes and as I as I take in what the environment is giving me. Now, there's two things to me that play into that. One is my own individual ego trying not to get in the way. And I think one of the ways for me that I've been able to get around that is experience. My, my experience has been allowed me to, to put my ego aside and go, dude, you don't have to prove anything to yourself. Like right, you've right. done enough. Today's not the day. Don't worry about it to the point where I've gotten in there and maybe we, we've, we've climbed and skinned in there, gotten to the objective, assess the risk, realized it was too much and go, you know what? We're going to turn around and go right back down the way we came. And I'm okay with that. But the second thing and, and I know there's a lot to this. I'm not, this could be a whole other podcast, but I'll just, I'll just frame it as saying your partners that you choose to do certain things with have a huge influence on the overall, uh, safety of, of that trip, right? Because if, if that other person doesn't have the same skill set or is somebody who's, you know, got a bigger ego and isn't willing to back down or somehow has an influence over you where you're willing to, to cower to, you know, to their will, even though you know it's wrong, you can absolutely still find yourself in a really bad situation. And so I've chose not so much anymore, but in the past, I chose to do things on my own right? so that I owned every decision, right or wrong. But when you start putting a partner or a series of partners in, the selection of those partners, like not every partner I have is good for every objective I want to do Right in the backcountry. No matter what I'm doing, not every, not every partner is right for that. And sometimes I feel the best way to mitigate the risk is to do it by myself, even though that maybe sounds insane. My assessment is at this point, maybe I'm better off by myself. So there's a whole series of things that you have to consider um, when you're when you're factoring in risk. It is not this slapping six guns on your hip and riding into town shooting them up. But like it's not this cowboy kind of mentality. When you want to be a pro, what I call a pro, and I'm not yeah. saying you have to get paid, but if you want to approach it like what I call as a student of the game, you have to consider these things if you're going to go pack raft down a river in the spring when it's high flood stage right or all these different things it's easy to see on on a on an instagram page but it's it's there's so much involved in doing these things in a, in a safe manner um that uh i just don't think people realize uh, i i would agree and i want to transition into more some more specific winter stuff and that that goat story was a perfect segue but before we do i think it would be a great time to share because i know knowledge from storms was just launched recently i know there's still kind of more content coming online but i think it's it's 
Also, if anybody doesn't currently follow John on Instagram, that the quality of those long form, like you're almost hijacking that system. Like for a system that's <laughs> meant to be, you know, this like bright, flashy ADHD based consumptive platform and you're, you're hijacking it and like sneakily putting like, like an, an unbelievable amount of super useful information out there, but share a little bit about what knowledge from storms is what you're hoping to, to accomplish with it and how people can engage with it. Yeah. So knowledge from storms is, uh, is a website that I launched, I think in August, right before I went into the Alaska bush to caribou hunt. It's a, it's essentially a, a free online educational platform. Okay. Um, if, if you're interested in going into wilderness type areas, um, no matter what you want to do, I mean, I, I tend to focus on hunting and skiing as kind of the, 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 the avenues of, of communicating. But if that's something you're interested in, that's what Knowledge from Storms is there for. And, and the, you know, the, the term Knowledge from Storms really is referring to knowledge acquired from experience, right? Knowledge acquired from the school of hard knocks. Um, and it's, you know, it's my experiences over the course of 30 some years and over time it will grow to hopefully be, uh, knowledge and experiences from other people that have weathered the same storms. And so it's, it's not information there to sell you a product. It's not information there to convince you of anything. It is knowledge there to educate you, to make you a student of the game, and hopefully you can take those lessons and go and apply them however you want to, to find success, however you define it. Awesome. I think that's, I think that's great. And I love the fact that it's not like a driven by any particular, you know, financial motivation or, or, or product kind of based thing too, because I do think, you know, the fact that it's altruistic is even that much more accessible for people. And I do, Again, people, you know, investigate your sources because there's a lot of information out there, but how much do you know about the people who are actually, you know, putting it out? And I think that that carries a lot of weight as well. Yeah. Can I, can I use the term hijack the IG platform in the future? That's I yours, man. That. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of an age that I just don't, I don't give a shit. And yeah. listen, you're going to give me a free platform if people are going to listen. Like I'm going to, I'm. I am essentially giving people, um, you know, it's, there's a structure to it. it. It's related to a season or a time of year or, you know, something pertinent that, you know, has come up. Um, I, I am giving people an inside look at how pros actually learn and, and, and teach uh, each other. Like this is not knowledge that I know of that is readily available. Yep. Um, you can certainly take a Knowles course or uh, something of the of that, and you should. Um, but I'm just saying, hey, after, after my 30 years and I taught quite a bit of that, I realized I was being very selfish if I didn't share it with the world. And if you find value, I'm stoked. And if you don't, that's okay too. But but you know, we're going to share these experiences. And give you uh, knowledge and talk about things that that I don't know. Very few people else uh, else out there are are are, are talking about or even uh, clued into. 
I've been very uh, inspired by how fast your page has grown as well. Because I can remember, I think it was like a picture of a cat for like the longest time. It was a picture of a cat for like (laughs) two or three years. Yeah, with like single digit (laughs) followers. Like nobody even really pieced anything together. And in the last year or two, it's blown up. And I think that's it. Like there is a desire out here for good, high quality information. And and you can see that in the growth because – you don't go to your page for grip and grins. You don't go to your page no, for no. other, like that's not what is on there. Like you, you, there's other places to go for that. You predominantly, it is like long form. If you're not interested in watching like an eight to 12 minute video, your Instagram channel is not should, of interest to there. most people. No, no. Correct. And the fact yep. that it's grown as fast as it can while maintaining that integrity, I think is a testament that people, there is an honest, like authentic desire for that type of content. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been really pleased. It, it's it's actually been crazy how it how it has grown. Um, I, I just think what it shows is people are, I think they're aware. I think social media has made them aware that you know, hey, I can't. Maybe I can't go do these things that that I thought I could do. Where do I? How do I even begin? I hear this all the time. Where do I even begin? Yeah. Um, that 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 that's a place to start, right? So this appetite for information for education, for, for insight, um, I think is really there. And I think, uh, and I'm certainly not putting down anybody else's platform, but I think that so many of the platforms out there are either there to, uh, entertain Mm -hmm. and or sell. And that's totally fine. And, And there's, there's certainly a place for that, but it's not giving people what they really need to go pursue their own dreams outside. And so I'm just trying to help them because I, I like teaching. I realized I missed it. Um, and so, you know, I, I figure, well, here, here were my criteria. I'm going to start it. And after one year, if I like it, and if there's a consumer out there that, that feels there's value, then I'll continue to do it. Uh, but because it's my platform, I reserve the right to stop at any time. Right. But the other thing I wanted to do is every year I wanted to reassess where I was and to try to build. So the first year or so was just IG. Now I've got uh, the website. I've got a YouTube channel and, you know, I don't know what's next. I'm certainly thinking about some things and kicking them around, but it, but it's, it's all in the vein of, of education for that, that outdoor consumer. Okay. So I think this is a really good segue because I want to talk a little bit of gear, but I actually want to talk kind of gear philosophy first. So you've used the term before, no compromise mindset in the approach to gear design. And I would like to know, what do you mean by that? And how does that end up manifesting in, in product that we end up wearing? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the no compromise mindset, you know, it, it really came from my, my military background. So, you know, as, as an example, you know, if, if, if you insert a team of guys for a military operation, um, they don't get the luxury of coming out if they're cold, wet, uh, you know, the seat of their pants tears out, the sole of their boot falls off, whatever the case may be. They don't get that luxury. They stay till they're done. Um, so, kind of taking that same mindset and applying it to, you know, all the things I've talked about that, that I used or I still do. Um, you know, it just became part of who I was and, and what I did and kind of became my, 
my own personal philosophy because we developed a lot of gear um, uh, up in Alaska for special operations troops to go into Afghanistan. So now, you know, kind of jump forward and I, I end up getting, you know, re- retiring and I, I move over to Sitka. You know, they, they, they were a perfect fit for me because uh, they shared the same mindset. They didn't necessarily talk about it the same way I did or, or discuss it that way. It was about, you know, hey, the consumer values durability, right? I'm like, yeah, perfect. Well, the consumer also, you know, should value performance. Um, and, and trying to marry those two things up in a business setting to deliver a product that is um, that does what it says it does, but also uh, is commercially viable as far as you know price and and can we make enough of it, um, and is not uh, you know so crazy that it's either unaffordable or or it you know doesn't perform because you're trying to cut costs like that. That was a perfect fit for me, and, and they let me kind of get in there and and kind of do what I wanted to do, which was build no compromise gear because I'm an end user. You're an end user. So I'm not going to build something that I don't believe in. I'm not going to build something that I'm not going to trust my life to. I'm not going to build something that doesn't live up to what I consider are, are my own performance metrics. And because I'm a product manager, the products that I bring to market, I am able to craft what the performance metric is, what the durability should be, all those things. And so then I go and take them and apply my own, you know, kind of personal testing philosophy to that and make sure that that it kind of meets all those wickets. And, uh, you know, I don't just use myself. I use other people. Uh, you know, I use some friends of mine who are professional guides. Uh, I use people that, you know, spend most of their days running around the mountains more time than I have. But we all share that same philosophy. Um, but, but, but that's what it is which is it, it does what it's intended to do all the time and there's no uh, cutting of corners, right? For the sake of uh, cost or margin or, you know, all these business metrics that, you know, are real for sure. Uh, but, but you know, we're, we're not trying to just build a product to build it. We're trying to build a product to do what it says because we know people are going to go out there like yourself on some of these hunts. And really, quite frankly, uh, you know, trust your life to that gear. I, I consider clothing the the first line of defense or what I call the your your armor from the elements. Right. Like I consider my clothing to be my, you know, aside from my from my mind, you know, it's my first piece of survival kit. Because most of us are not going to run around no matter what the shows show, uh, naked and afraid, right? No. You, you're going to be naked and you should be afraid because you're going to die, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And people don't talk about efficacy either. Like, yeah, I can go out there in a pair of Wranglers and a Carhartt jacket, but are you going to be as, as efficacious for as long a period of time? Like I, I do see some people, I don't need all that fancy stuff to live. And it's like, you might not need it to, well, and it actually the fact of the matter is if you are going to some of the places where we go, you are going to die in a pair of Wranglers and Carhartts. But on some of the less adventurous hunts, I do think there's an argument to be made about how effective your clothing is helping you be because even let's say I'm five to 10% drier or five to 10% warmer. That's just that much more, you know, mental horsepower I have to dedicate to whatever my goal is that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I think that's another element of it that people don't 
Like if you are in a place in life where you can have the nice stuff, you are going to be a more effective individual. If you know how to use it, you have this other great quote that like, we got to teach people how to use gear. Cause it's like giving the keys to a Porsche to a 16 year old. And I yeah. think that's the other, just because you have the money doesn't mean you're using it right. And I think that's the other kind of half, which is an interesting segue because I think the other kind of stamp that you put on it sick and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I think you've actually reduced skews since you got to Sitka and you've kind of brought in this systems page by 50%. Based, by 50%. Like that's, and that like, so talk to me about like, what's the philosophy there? And clearly that's kind of a lead into a systems based approach to, to clothing and gear. Um, Will you remind me about the systems-based clothing approach here? I will. I want to I go back to what you first said about okay. the Wranglers and Carhartts. Yes. So, you know, our granddads, their granddads, I, I, they, they did that, right? They yep. did that. Um, and, and I'm sure they suffered more than they needed to. And I'm sure that they were potentially not as effective as they could have been. Um, but there were a lot of animals back then and yep. a lot less people. But if you value these wilderness experiences and you only have, you know, most people only have a very short amount of time, uh, a number of vacation days to, to spend away and go do this thing. So let's just say, you know, elk hunting, that I want to maximize my time of field. And if I want to maximize my time of field and stack all the odds legally in my favor that I can, um, Besides the knowledge you bring and the skills of, say, the weapon and the land navigation, the clothing is part of that. Because I like to say I don't want to be driven out of the mountains uh, by Mother Nature. I want to leave on my own terms. And so that goes back to the military where I can't, I can't leave because guys are cold and wet. Right. You got to suck it up. But what's better is don't be cold and wet so we can focus on the task at hand get done what we need to get done and leave when we say we're ready to leave. Right. I take that same philosophy and apply it to the mountain hunter. If you're going to wear Carhartts and, and jeans, because that's all you can afford, understand you are absolutely limiting your, your, your capability. You're, you're limiting uh, your performance and you are probably limiting in today's day and age, your opportunity at success. Right. So it just depends on how much, you care about it. Um, if all you can afford is this, will, this will go back to what we're talking about. But if all you can afford is say the insulated Carhartt uh, coverall to go whitetail hunting, I can help you make that as effective as it can be. Right. But don't think that it can be as effective as the most modern day technical insulated clothing system specifically built for whitetail hunting. I can help you get the most performance out of what you have or what you can afford or what you want to use, but don't kid yourself and think that it's as good as the best. So if you're a person who values their one week of vacation to go whitetail hunt, and you're going to go try to sit every day on stand 12 hours a day and kill that one buck that one opportunity you have to lose uh, a lethal arrow, if you can afford the best, it will absolutely begin to help stack the odds in your favor. And I've said this before several places, but 
three years in a row in northern Missouri, we had a lease, me and two buddies. I killed three bucks between 11.45 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. My buddies, the first two years, were at home sleeping because they could not stay warm right. to sit there all day. By the third year, we all had this, the right stuff, and, and we, were, we were all successful. So it just depends on how, you know, how important it is to you. And then, you know, can you do it? I would tell people that if you can't afford whatever technical clothing system you want to buy from whatever brand you, you affiliate with, start slowly and think about it as an investment. What I don't want people to do is go, well, I don't have the best stuff, so I'm not going to go whitetail hunt until I do, yep. or I'm not going to go elk hunt until I do. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. But certainly understand where you are and your capabilities and learn and then slowly over time get to where, say, you are where you can go on a late season, February, BC, coastal, right, mountain goat hunt, like yep. PhD level hunting. You don't get there in year one. No. Um, but going back to the systems, what, what I've what I've realized and I've, I've done a few videos on this and I, I honestly I didn't plan it this way. But when I got to Sitka, all I heard from consumers and from, you know, our, our retail accounts was <clears throat> it's too complicated. Right. There's too much stuff. It's too hard to understand. Uh, it's not intuitive. And, and I mean, I, I understood what they were saying, but I wasn't really sure how to how to tackle that. Um, but over time. What I realized and, and looking back and, and things I had done and you know, I was part of a team that developed the, purse, the first uh, cold weather clothing system for special operations. And, and I I'd had my own thoughts over time of what I would do if I had to do that over again. And, and that's what I eventually because we work so many years in advance in product development. It's you can't just say I'm going to do I'm going to change it today. You won't see that change for two years at least. Mm -hmm. It, it took time, but what I've been trying to do is reduce the amount of gear, but make it, uh, you know, put it into systems that, that make sense, that are somewhat intuitive and go, this is a good system for this, good system for that, good system for that. There's always going to be some crossover and, and some, you know, bleed over, um, but, but do that. But then you have to add the educational piece. And so what it's come down to is, listen, we still have, I, I, top of my head, I'm going to tell you I have, let's just say I have 42 products. Uh, maybe it's more than that. But we're, the year I'm working in right now, there's 42 products in men's big game. Okay. But out of those 42 products, if you say, Jay, you come and say, hey, I'm going to go do this hunt. I'm going to say you need these eight pieces of gear. Right. And if you say, well, now I'm going to go do this hunt, and I'm going to say you need eight pieces of gear. And so what I've kind of boiled it down to, and, and I, I hope people uh, understand this, but there's really only eight pieces of clothing in a system, a technical clothing system uh, for a big game hunter or a whitetail hunter that really that's all you need to be effective. Now, that, that may change a little bit from you know, a warm season hunt to a super late season hunt. But you still only need to assemble those eight pieces of gear. And out of those eight pieces of gear in a big game system, I would say that I think it's five, five, maybe six for me are relatively standard across the whole spectrum. So if somebody says, 
you know, I can't get into a technical clothing system because it's, it's either too expensive or, you know, it's too confusing. I would say start, start with your base layer. That's a part that goes against your skin. That's always the foundation of any system. Mm-hmm. Start there and just over time, build out eight pieces of gear. And if you can only afford eight pieces, then make those eight versatile pieces that transcend a lot of different seasons, be it whitetail or big game. And you will be in the game. You will be in the game and then you will slowly over time be able to, you know, apply your own personal, uh, you know, uh, you know, style and specifically where you hunt and all those things to kind of fine tune that system. But we all try to make it to include myself more complicated than really it needs to be. But you have to understand how things work as a system to really get the full potential to your point you know, given the keys to your Porsche to the 16 year old who just got his driver's license, there's no way he's going to, you know, get all the performance out of that car. Yeah. hundred percent. We're going a bit long. How are you doing for time, John? Uh, I'm good. Okay. I'm always, I'm always long winded. No, this is great. I, I, I apologize <laughs> if I am, but, uh, no, it's more value, man. It's all, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. So this is perfect. Okay. So I want to transition a little bit into some some specific winter hunting gear questions, and then I want to go over some some recommendations for for February for me specifically. I'd like to know what your experience has been like with snowshoes. I I'm I'm so having spent many years in work snowshoes, we like wore tubs and just beat the shit out of them and threw them in the back of a pickup truck and never really worried. We weren't worried about weight. When I did my February goat hunt last year, I wore a pair of MSR Lightning Ascents, which from my research seemed to be widely respected as probably the premium snowshoe out there. Now, my fault, not MSRs. Between me and my pack, I was 350. And uh, the snowshoes blew apart, man, to the point where I was coming out and they were literally tied together with Dyneema Cord and and Hilleberg tent pegs. Um, I did make it to the truck. And there's that's a whole other story I could tell where there's an example of like, because of, you know, experience and knowledge, I was able to take a shit situation and kind of make the best of it that, uh, that I could, but what's been your experience. And I don't know if you have any specific recommendations. I realized more than the tool, it was almost how I was treating it. I was just with an ultralight piece of gear like that. I simply could not abuse it the way that I did, but I'd love to hear your experience on, on snowshoes in particular. Yeah. So, um, right tool for the right job and snowshoes, you know, for people that have never used them, um, you know, rel- relatively easy to learn, right? Mm-hmm. You, you put them on your feet and you go walk around and I like to call them clown shoes Yep. and, and you figure it out. But, but you got to understand if you're going into a deep snowpack, you have to have snowshoes. Yep. You, you will not get anywhere and you'll exhaust yourself if you don't. So snowshoes are easy to learn and they're relatively inexpensive to purchase. Um, if you don't know how to ski, if you don't have the gear, um, then snowshoes are the best choice for sure. Now, the type of snowshoe you choose, that's interesting because the lightning ascents are really more of a uh, small platformed, uh, very little surface area snowshoe for, you know, people hiking and recreating and, you know, God forbid somebody wanted to run in them on the trail, they could. 
but it doesn't provide you enough float. Now I'm not sure they had a tail. Did they have a tail? I, they did. I bought I bought an additional six inch tail. Yeah. So I think so, I was close to 30. They might've been 30 inch. I bought the biggest ones they had. They were the 30 or 33s and then the additional six inch tail on top yeah, of that. Yeah. Gotcha. So I, I don't know if they still make the Denali Ascent. That's the one we, we used to use in the military, um, which would, they were kind of built and would hold up to that. You know, you're a big guy, but when you start throwing a bunch of bullets and uh, rifles and radios on guys, they get pretty heavy, pretty quick. And, yeah, and they, imagine. and they, they held up quite well. Okay. And so it's really, it's kind of picking the, the right tool for the job. Um, but you know, at a certain point you do like every piece of gear is going to have its limitations. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm sure like, you know, especially if you step in the wrong place and it, it bridges that snowshoe, it's going to start to crack and, you know, um, but you were capable of getting out, you know, it would have been interesting if, if you had a complete failure, what that would have looked like. I mean, um, I've lost, uh, you know, I've lost a ski in the backcountry one time and thought I was going to die wallowing my way out. But, um, but, uh, but the fact of the matter is snowshoes are, are efficient and they float you and they get you around in deep snowpacks. They're not going to be as efficient as say a backcountry skiing setup. Um, which is what I prefer. But again, I've got the gear, I've got the, the skill set and the experience, you know, to, to put that together. Um, but, but snowshoes are a great, op- like you shouldn't think that you're limited by going in the backcountry in the winter because you can't get in there. Snowshoes are the tool for most people to, to get them in and out. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up the specific example of the Boeing. There've been a lot of where I go, there's heavy, there's heavy snowfall and there's a lot of like smaller shoots that have avalanched down into the river and you end up walking across all these like almost cobblestone, like, you know, bowling ball size. And I realized what I was doing halfway through the trip is I, w- I just wasn't being thoughtful enough with how I walked. And I was taking for granted that I had these 36 inch feet and I was just walking and I was putting far too much I, I was stepping without direct support under my foot yep. itself far too yep. often. And this in the snowshoes just weren't built to support that. So I think, I think going in a little bit lighter this year and just being more cognizant of how, you know, there's limitations to the tool and respecting those limitations. I'm, I feel a lot, I feel a lot better about my odds. Did you use trekking poles with the snowshoes? I did. Yeah. 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 I think that's clutch. Like those two kind of have to go hand in hand. Well, and until you've fallen over in snowshoes (laughs) with like an 80 pound pack on your back and tried to get up without, and you're just punching through the snow. Oh my God, man. On this back. Yeah. And I, I, there was a couple times I came down full, full force on those. And I'll even give them a shout out to the black diamond trail ergo cork ones. Uh Um, uh, and they never broke. I still have them today. I put the powder baskets on for the winter time and, and those things are champs, man. And they were one of the most clutch pieces of gear I had because you could just, I could put them side by side and that would give them just enough surface area. And that would give me just enough that I could push up and, and yeah, you're just, you're right, man. It's like a turtle. Like it's one of the, <laughs> and your, your feet are flailing around and you're trying to flip the snowshoe back under your foot. Oh like, yeah. It's brutal. And, and exhausting. Yes. That was... Yeah. That type of snow, and I in the mule deer hunt we just got back from, there was two and a half, three feet, and we didn't have snowshoes because we weren't expecting that depth of snow. And it just reminded me again, I mean, I haven't spent a whole lot of time running in sand dunes, but I can't imagine anything just as purely physically draining as walking through snow. It just feels like walking through wet cement. Like it's yep. just everything is so much harder. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think that's important for people to understand, you know, not, not to go down too far of tangent, but you know, if you're going to bring snowshoes, you know, your rate of travel is going to be slower. You're not going to be able to move around as, as fast or as far. And, you know, your calorie consumption uh, is, is probably going to go up. Right. So all those things have to be factored in because it's not going to be as easy as just throwing them on and walking like you're walking without them on a, on a hard pack trail. It's just not. It was such a huge learning for me last year. And in fact, I realized that it was taking me three days to get as far as my initial plan and predicted one. And by the end of day one, I was like, and at first you're like, I, I have a bit of a temper and I was just pissed off because I was going so slow. And then I realized you're asking the wrong question here, man. This is just a given now. This is your yep. new rate of travel. So now when you get in the tent tonight, open your map and just recalculate everything because this is a new piece of data and you're just going to have to accept it and move on because there is no moving faster than this in this circumstance. Right, right. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, either because the length of your trip could be the same, but, but yes. what you're able to accomplish is going to be less. So can you get to your objective? Are you going to run out of food? Are you going to run out of fuel? You know, prior to you, you know, being able to achieve what you want to achieve. But yeah, it's, it's, and so now you have that data point yeah. to where you can go and plan that the next time and, and just be that much better. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. You're kind of famous for this rewarming drill, which I recognize you didn't, you didn't create, but you kind of popularized it through a couple of, I think it was initially an, an Eastman's hunting journal. And I think there's a, there's a YouTube video that followed up from that. Uh-huh. And my question isn't specifically to do with that. I'm going to tell you what I did, and then you can tell me if it was if it was wrong. So where I was was severe northwest British Columbia. There was zero fuel for fire. Now, I have been told that if I'd have gone far enough up the slope, I would have reached an area where I could have got burnable fuel. But that was a learning lesson for me. I had assumed I would have been able to start a fire at night to dry out some of my gear. I took a Kafaru slick bag. I think it was their minus 21. It's like a five pound bag. It's synthetic. And between my shelter and my sleeping bag, that was like my, my bomb shelter. I was like, okay, if I fall in a Creek or like I did take some other down pieces just to shave weight, but like that synthetic bag and the Hilleberg solo was like my last line of defense. I'm like, okay, if the worst thing in the world happened, I could get in that bag, in that shelter, and I'm going to be able to ride out just about anything. So at the end of every day, I would literally be sopping wet, um, either from pure exhaustion or from the fact that there was like a combination of, of rain and snow falling. And my nightly system was literally wearing every single thing. I'm talking like Kelvin active jacket, like the same long John, like everything out. And I would just crawl in as soon as I got back to the tent, I would crawl in that synthetic bag and I would zip it up straight. And I would just literally lay in there for an hour after dinner because I'd be so exhausted anyways. And then, then I'd kind of open it and I'd cook in the tent and I would do, but anyways, long story short, short story long, I would throughout the night, every couple hours, like one more piece would be dry enough that I would take it off, put it in a stuff sack. And by, by the morning I was waking up dry as a bone in my base layer with everything else in a dry bag that I could then put back on for the next day. I mean, it was horribly uncomfortable, like forcing yourself to sit in that clammy bag. Like it was like just, just a gross feeling, but it was the only, it was the only thing I, I had, but I would love to hear 
what the approach would be in similar circumstances when like you cannot rely on a fire to dry your gear and it's so damn cold you bigger up you better figure something out to to not be putting on wet clothes the next morning yeah so what what you did was pr- pretty much exactly what you what you need to do so i like to say that you should not rely on a fire a okay. fire is absolutely a luxury in the backcountry for a couple reasons one either you're in an environment where like you couldn't get the wood, right? Or you're in weather where making a fire is almost impractical um, or you don't possess the skills, right, to, to, to do it, as, yep. especially given the, the realistic scenario. So, um, you know, I like to say, I'm not going to go down a tangent, but I, but I say if, if, if you want to, if you think you have that fire making as a skill in your in your quiver, you better know that, you better know the limitations of that and you better have practiced in extreme conditions because you don't need a fire when the weather's good. You need a fire when the weather's poor. Um, so what can you rely on? The only, the only true thing you can rely on to create heat, to generate heat, to provide heat for you, uh, is your internal metabolic engine, right? Your body creating heat that is fueled by food and water. So those go hand in hand. Then, you have to put around that to insulate and protect that heat source, the clothing system, which is why I say it is my first piece of survival kit is my clothing system because I may not have anything more than that. I may not have my pack. I may not have a stove. I may not have my, my flint steel, but I have those clothes. I have my metabolic engine. I need to try to provide fuel for that to keep it going. Um, this is where I like to say you, you must exercise your clothing system, which is to say, go out and see if your clothing system will dry out. So go back to the Carhartts and jeans. The, the answer is no, it will not dry out. Uh, if you have a synthetic system, there's a good chance it will dry out. And you need to understand how that works. And it is by cooking mm-hmm. the system dry with your body. And all those layers of, of clothing you have are just layers of insulation or baffles that allows that, you know, kind of is a governor for that heat to escape slowly. And as it moves, as that moisture moves away to the cold environment, it's going to draw that, that moisture through all those layers and eventually they'll be dry. And so what you did is, is actually textbook. It's truly the only thing you can do because the question I would ask anybody who says, well, uh, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I say, well, what would you do? Right. So what most people would do, uh, the person in the car hearts or the jeans or the person who doesn't want to, uh, you know, quite frankly, suck it up with some type two fun. And like you said, being gross in the sleeping bag yeah. as you cook and steam yourself dry. Like people, people tend to think that just because it's, this is the right technique that somehow it's somewhat enjoyable or or easy or fun. Fuck no, it's not any of those things, but it's all you have. But the only other alternative to what you did, which was exactly what you should have done is you get in your tent, you take everything off, you throw it in the bottom of the, of the tent in a ball and you climb in naked or with your base layers on your warm, your dry, you're comfortable almost instantly. Yep. But all you've done is escalate your issue and uh, just uh, uh, put off 
the immense suck factor you're going to have to deal with when tomorrow morning, those clothes, that is your first line of defense. The only way you're getting out of the backcountry is in a frozen ball at the bottom of your tent that you now have to somehow put on and eventually figure out how to cook dry. Uh, the last thing is even if you do get a fire, most of the time, the way people make fires and most of the time, uh, they, they have the, the, the patience, the time, the fuel, the fire is nothing really more than a psychological boost. It's not really providing you the warmth to fully dry out a system. I mean, yeah, if you could get a bonfire going or you could get some long six foot fire and lay next to it, but most people are going to make a small fire. It's going to help them emotionally, but it's really not going to help them dry out. So you really have to understand the basics and the principles and the, the foundations of how these things work if you're going to go do something like you did, right? And, and if you don't have the right clothing, I would rather find that out in a training scenario in my backyard or close to home than find out on the hunt you were at where you couldn't push the SOS button and expect to be pulled out of there anytime soon, I'm sure, right? No, no, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good because the real watershed moment to me was when I realized because it, it's so counterintuitive, like even on a regular day, you know, let's say it's like a chilly fall day and you get to the top of the hill and you're about to start glassing and your back is wet. You think I should sit here until I air out and you don't realize that your body, once you've lost that momentum of heat from the hike, like it's so hard to get it back. And then when you finally have that watershed moment, you realize, no, I got to put my puffy on right now. And I'm, and I'm gross and I, it, it feels, why would I put on a puffy when I'm hot and sweaty? And it's like, no, because that's going to allow you to evacuate that moisture from your base layers through the puffy while you're still hot enough to like effectively do that. And then by the time your body cools down from the hike being over, you will have dried out enough of your base layer that you won't, that like that chill that, that is hard to shake won't have had the opportunity to set in. And that was just... I knew enough about that that I'm like, oh, I'm just going to extend that. And the other thing, you were a big influence in me switching a lot of my stuff from down to because I've tried the same techniques in down and I will, it works marginally well, but not to the same degree. Like if you're in slightly adverse conditions, you can get away with it. I have a down quilt I quite like for elk hunting. And because it won't be negative temperatures, I can still apply the same principles and I'll wake up with pretty dry clothes. But it was nothing like that synthetic bag. I'm talking like crispy. Like that shit was dry, like bone dry by the time I woke up in the morning. And that's the other thing I want to hit home for people. I don't believe, and this is, this is new to me in the last year or two because I used to be a really big down proponent. I don't believe down has the same ability to like allow that moisture to permeate through it and maintain dry the same way that some of the newer synthetic insulation layers do. So can I geek out for a second with please you? Please do, please do. So um, I, I have nothing against down. I, I think a pure down product has no has no place in the backcountry. Treated down or a treated down blend absolutely does, but it's not it's not the, the go-to solution for every scenario. Right. Um, I think if, if somebody's picking one sleeping bag or buying one puffy jacket, that's all they can afford. They're starting out. You buy synthetic, it's, it's bomb-proof, right? It's the pickup truck. You're going to drive it every day. Uh, you know, you're going to leave the sports car you know, in, in the garage until you know, the weather's good and you have a Saturday and a couple hours off. So 
synthetics always going to be be bomb proof. But when you when you build a down product, and I build a synthetic uh, product, a uh, puffy. Let's just say a puffy jacket. Sure. Um, when I build a puffy jacket, most of the time the insulation is is this. It's called a long staple fiber. So it's like long sheets of insulation. It's all woven together. You can cut it into squares, whatever you want to do. And that's how they build the jacket. And because of that, the fabric I put on the outside and the inside of that jacket to kind of keep that insulation in place uh, can be a, a, a more open weave okay. because that insulation is, is stable, right? It's not going to go anywhere. And so because I can put a more open weave on, not only is the, the synthetic insulated jacket going to manage moisture better, but it's going to breathe better to right. move that moisture through the system. Now, when anybody builds a down jacket, uh, down is fire, is uh, feathers, right? And, and they're loose fill. Like you could cut open a down jacket and shake it and just like a, a pillow and it'd be everywhere. So to contain that and to make sure that those feathers don't poke out the jacket that you'll see sometimes and just, you know, fly away in the, in the atmosphere – you have to put a very tight knit face on the outside and the inside of that jacket. And by the very nature of that construction, you cut down on the vast majority of breathability. So a down puffy jacket is not going to breathe anywhere near as well as a synthetic puffy jacket as right. a general rule. And that's certainly the way that, that our team builds them. So you have to understand that. So now if you do get compromised and you are wet – that jacket that's made of down is going to keep you warm at first, but as as moisture starts to move and mitigate or uh, migrate through that insulation, it's it's not going to be as efficient as the synthetic. And so then, once moisture is trapped in within those down feathers, yeah, they're treated with a water repellency, so they're not going to clump up until you roll over and compress it on your arm or your shoulder, or your butt, or your back, or if it's a sleeping bag as you roll over. And then all of a sudden, those down feathers can compress. And then you kind of have the, the problem of reduced loft, reduced warmth. So you just have to understand the product you're using and the environment you're using it in to, again, try to get the most out of it. I use, I use treated down products uh, quite often in the winter. So treated down product is a water repellent feather with some synthetic insulation and you blend it up and it, it works really well. And most people wouldn't even know that there's any synthetic in it, but it's just enough to help, uh, not with the face fabrics, but it's just enough to help with the moisture, uh, management. Um, but a, a synthetic jacket in a wet environment is just going to keep, you could literally soak it in water, pull it out, put it on, cook it dry and do that over and over and over again. And unfortunately, you know, I've been on four five, seven day trips where it's like every day you get wet Yep. and every night yep. you got to dry your stuff out. And it's yep. the only thing you can do. And when the weather's really bad, you can't even think about starting a fire. Even if you have the fuel and, and the, and the ability, the weather just compromises against you and you can't even do it if you wanted to. So you're back to where we started of you have to cook it dry. Yep. Awesome. Um, I got some IG questions from a little poll I, I uh -oh. put up. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's close. That's, uh, 
let's close out with some of these. Are people going to be pissed off because I didn't uh, <laughs> I didn't ask them? Okay, well, we just answered that, basically. Yeah, he's saying he hikes. We're going to have to sweat. What do we do about it? We're saying you immediately it's fine. Puff, you immediately puff up at the top of the ridge. So yeah. so, so many times I see people say, well, I'm going to bring two or three sets of base layer. And I'm not, I don't understand that because yeah. I can dry a base layer on my body in 10 to 15 minutes. I don't even take doubles of anything and, and no. anymore. I just went on There's a seven-day no sheep hunt. I didn't even bring two pairs of underwear. I didn't bring two base layers. I didn't bring two anythings. The only because- thing I bring twos of is, is liner gloves and socks. Yeah, that was the funny thing is I brought, I love those Stormfront glove shells, shells. But, they're, but they're so good that when I wear the fleece liners that they come with, I sweat out pretty fast. And this was on your recommendation. I picked up a pair of thin Merino ones. And then I also keep a pair of those mechanic <laughs> yeah. gloves because yeah. I find for in trekking poles, like just those. And then if it starts to rain or if I stop to have a cup of coffee, just throw the shells on top of those, keeps my hands warm. And then as soon as I'm active again, dish those. And then those gloves are like 20 bucks. So it's exactly. like, you don't even care about them. Yep. But yep. yeah, a couple replaceable liners. Cause again, you can, you can dry those out as you go. And I do think things like socks and and, and glove liners are small enough. You could throw those in the bottom of your sleeping bag. Like you do have a bit of an ability, 100%. but as soon as you yep. even get to like a full top base layer or bottom base layer, there's just no, there's just no point. Um, you got an opinion on the best four season tent for Western mountain hunting? Uh, I, I don't, I don't know if I have like, I mean, there's certain brands I like. I don't know if I could tell you exact styles. So, um, you know, a, a, a tent, when you're talking a four season tent, I'm assuming somebody's going out year round. So winter, winter time, um, you have to have something that, that can buck the wind and, and can, and can buck the snow that builds up on it. So, um, you know, some brands that I've really relied on in, in the past and I still own them, uh, Nemo equipment, I think makes some excellent tents. Uh, Hilleberg is one that, that I've definitely trusted my life to, uh, in the past. And there's a, a couple tents made by uh, uh, Black Diamond Equipment uh, that work real well. Um, I haven't used North Face tents like V25s and, and and those in a very long time, but they used to be an industry standard. Um, but if you're, I guess I would just say if you're going out in the winter, you have to have a four season tent um, because if not, and I could tell you story after story. There's one time we were trapped on Mount Rainier halfway up in a tent that was so porous. Uh, it was so shitty. It was an experimental tent that it was so windy inside the tent that it was literally blowing snow into the tent, even though there was no mesh and it was so windy, we could not keep our stove lit. And because we wow. couldn't keep our stove lit, we couldn't melt snow to eat or drink. So we could have been in a really bad way uh, if we if if we hadn't found another party who happened to be in the same situation. And we went over there and were able to run our stove in their tent in the best shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's brutal. Yeah. What's your opinion on sock liners? This guy has, he gets particularly cold feet and he, he ran a sock liner, didn't have any luck. He's like a thicker sock might be tighter in my boot. What, what, yeah. Any recommendations there? You know, I've been, I've been uh, talking about whitetail footwear for a while. The last couple of weeks, I've been answering some questions. A, a liner sock, think of a liner sock is basically a base layer for your, for your foot. 
So what does it do? It's thin. It quickly moves moisture away from your foot. And then hopefully it moves it from that liner to the sock that you're wearing on outside of that. Um, I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. Uh, I've, I've, apparently a lot of people have very sweaty feet. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you don't want to have your feet sweat too much because it's going to set yourself up for some, you know, cold conditions. Um, I used to wear liner socks all the time. I don't wear them anymore. I, 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 I'm not saying I shouldn't. I just don't. Um, but if people have sweaty feet or they're trying to manage moisture in their foot, if they treat their foot with an antiperspirant, um, just like you would your armpit, normally that lasts most people for at least a day. And then they'd have to retreat it you know, every night. But uh, yeah, the problem is if you put too thick a sock or too many socks on, then you have to buy a boot around that that sock system or it's yeah. going to be too tight. I used to be a sock liner guy and I I started out my forestry career well over 20 years ago as a tree planter and a very physical job, really shitty conditions. I found what moved me away from that was the, it was the advent of sock technology. Like socks yeah. 20 years ago are night and day from yeah. socks now. And if you run a high end darn tough or exactly, something yep. like that of a similar grade in a, in a high quality boot, and I almost think feet, to some degree, I like the sweating comment. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever got is you need to leave the trailhead cold in regards to like how many layers should I be wearing because you're going to pick up heat as you go. And I think feet are the same way. You're almost better off, especially if you're going to be hiking, that they're, I wouldn't say have cold feet, but it, you know, it's almost more dangerous if they're too, they're too sweaty. Um, best insulation pieces. He runs cold on the sit. Uh, he hunts and backcountry sits, and it says Rab down. I don't even know what that is. So maybe, oh, maybe so Rab is a company out of okay. England that makes down products. Yeah. Oh right, I think they make a bivy too. I've heard of. Yeah, they make a bunch of stuff. Okay. Um, good, good stuff for mountaineering. So uh, a, a couple things. So a puffy jacket for sure. So we just we just went over puffy jackets yep. and different types of insulation. So all that applies. There's different thicknesses of puffy jackets. Another thing, though, is puffy pants. So I think you've tried some puffy pants, but... You know what's hilarious? I, so I've taken puffy pants on eight hunts. Only this last mule deer hunt is the first time I actually put them on. And I'm, I'm willing to admit when I'm an ass. And here's the deal. <laughs> my, my, my bottom half runs hot. So in my mind, my legs have never been cold, and they still weren't cold when I finally put the pants on this trip. What blew my mind was how much my core must have been exerting energy to keep my lower body warm. Because as soon as I put the puffy pants on the bottom, it was my low back that was initially cold because there was like a breeze coming from behind us. And as soon as I put the puffy pants on, the rest of my upper body warmed up. And I'm like, you're you're a bit of a jackass here because you had the ability to, to use this tool before and you haven't only because I misinterpreted the benefit that I was supposed to actually achieve. It wasn't about keeping my lower body warm. It was conserving energy from my warm core from being exerted to keep my lower body warm. Yeah. And, and I'm honestly, I'm the same way. Um, but you got to think about it. Your thigh muscles, your ass are like, those are big muscles and you Huge. have the femoral, you have the femoral artery running down each side. Right. And is that, is that it's almost like goes, a radiator? Like it's going, the blood's going down there, it's cooling off, and then it's coming back up into the core cold, and you got to yeah. heat it back up every yeah. single circuit. It's, it's not like a radiator, it is a radiator, right? So, yes. yes, so aside from a puffy jacket and puffy pants, 
down or synthetic is your choice. Uh, uh, but I think what this person is doing, especially if they're glassing, you have to insulate yourself from the ground. You have to consider conductive cooling. If you sit down on the ground, even a pair of puffy pants, the cold earth is going to suck the heat out of your body. So you have to sit on a ground pad. I, I carry a small foam piece of ground pad to sit on when I'm yep. glassing. I stand on it when I'm standing to insulate myself from conductive cooling. So it's not just the puffy, but again, how you're applying it. And that there's a couple other things, understanding how your body loses heat, uh, that you can counter those forces. I love that. And I'll add one little tip, a learning from my goat hunt that I've taken on to other hunts now. I used to just take the Z seat, which was like a quite small square. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. That's just one layer thick. And somebody else told me when you're on this goat hunt, it was a rifle hunt. You're going to have to lay prone. They're like, buy the full blown one and just cut a quarter of it off because you don't need anything from your knees down. And now that I take that, even as my sitting pad, if I fold that up in half, the additional insulation from having two layers and having it go out from my body so that not as I sink in, I don't get like the side of the thighs aren't pressing against the snow makes a huge difference. And we're talking like an extra four or five ounces. And then like, I'm assuming you're using that as well with a ground pad at night in your tent. A hundred percent. Absolutely. No, I yeah. do the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, we got a request. More women's hunting gear, please. And maybe include women in the catalogs. Um, so again, we I, I work a little bit farther out than than what the consumer sees today. Yep. But I would just say standby. Okay. Yeah. I remember asking for some a particular product and you're like, a couple of years, but it's on the way. I'm like, okay, <laughs> good enough. <laughs> oh, this one, uh, uh Lander, Lander's, uh, you can't throw oh, up a Q&A without a smart ass <laughs> showing up. So when, when winter camping, does John ever make tequila snow cones? <laughs> um, do you want me to answer that seriously? I mean, yeah, sure. Why not, man? Uh, uh, the answer is yes. And I'll tell you exactly okay. how you do it. Okay, let's do it. So you take a, an algae bottle. Yeah. And you, you put some snow in there, right? Yeah. And then you pour your tequila in. Yeah. And then you take like a lemon lime, uh, like drink mix. Yeah. So you could use like you know whatever your favorite drink mix is or Gator, and you mix it in there and you shake it up, and it okay. becomes it becomes a uh, blended it becomes a blended margarita. I love it. Yeah. When I was used to climbing California, we'd use one fifty one, and uh, Hawaiian punch like a powdered Hawaiian punch, and we call them mountain montas. That's so, hilarious. Lander should know me well enough to know that I always have a drink, uh, yeah. a drink option. I messaged him back. I'm like, you know, the answer is going to be yes to that. I didn't know we were going to get, you know, that and detailed. You, oh, and life's too short to drink shitty booze. So yeah. bring good tequila. Yeah. And I feel that way about coffee. Life's too short for oh, shitty coffee. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one liter versus 1.7 liter reactor pot. Uh, how important is the extra 0.7 liters? Like, I think what this guy's getting at is he just wants one for year round. And so nine out of 10 hunts, he just needs to get away with a liter. Does he really need that extra 0.7 liters for the one or two hunts when he's going to have to melt snow for water? Not if you're by yourself. Okay. Um, if you're going to go pr probably one liters enough. Um, I, I do tend to carry the 1.7 in winter because when I'm melting snow, it's just a little more efficient. And most times I'm with another guy, but if I had to pick between the two, I'd say, yeah, just go to the one liter pot. Okay. At least you can boil one Nalgene at a time. So, yeah. 
And I don't know this next product, but the, this gentleman is asking your thoughts on NUMA heated thermal layers. Yeah. So I was just talking to somebody about this recently. Um, I, I've seen them. I've not used them. Um, so I can't really comment either way. I'll, I'll say they're a good idea. Right. And if they work, if the battery technology is there, then I definitely think it's something to consider. I would never consider it for a, a, a big game backcountry hunt. But I think if you're sitting in a tree stand or maybe in a, in a duck blind, uh, it, may, it may be something to consider. And, and the reason I think so is because it's, it's essentially a base layer, which is where I think it probably serves the most, uh, the most benefit. That makes sense. Um, John, I can't thank you enough. This was one of those episodes where I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to it because there was so much valuable information. As we close out, is there, is there anything you want to share? Maybe let's, let's give the URL and your, your Instagram again so, so people know where to hold you, but the floor is yours if there's any closing thoughts that you want to leave on. Yeah, so uh, on, on Instagram, I'm at jbarklow, and, and the website is Knowledge from Storms. YouTube channel's the same. Um, you know, the, the one thing I would just say is, uh, I like to say people need to become a student of the game. And so listening to a podcast like this, um, you know, reading, training, um, all those things are going to benefit, um, you out in the wilderness. Cause you know, if, if we go out there long enough, something eventually is going to go, uh, not, not, not wrong in the sense of dying, but you're definitely going to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And, and all that training and all that knowledge that you acquire now is not going to be wasted. Um, and so because of that, I would say people should uh, just take a, a slow, systematic approach. Enjoy the journey. Don't try to go from first year hunting to late season mountain goat hunting in the course of a year. But, but build those skills. Hunting, the actual hunting season is so finite. It's like, what are you doing the other 350 days a year or 320 days a year? Like, that's the awesome time to build skills and build partnerships and go try stuff and, and geek out on gear and, and make sure that when you do step into the arena and you do have that tag in your hand, that you're as efficient and effective as possible. Love it. Um, can't thank you enough, John. Deeply appreciate you, you taking the time. This was, I enjoyed this was it, awesome. Jay. You, you're, you're right in my wheelhouse today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, man. All right, have a good one and good luck on the rest of your season. We'll chat to you soon. All right, thanks, bro. Cheers. Well, there you go, guys. Fantastic podcast with an awesome guy. I can't thank John enough for his time, his insight, and sharing his experience with us. So if you could take the time to like, comment, share, subscribe, go give John a follow, let him know you appreciated the information, I would greatly appreciate it. And as always, thanks for tuning in.